Pope Francis delivers a message to journalists this week in Rome about how they cover the Vatican. What did he say? The National Catholic Register's senior correspondent, Edward Penton, reports. And former Vatican doctrinal chief, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, joins us to weigh in on the growing controversy over the Vatican's document on same-sex blessings and more. The persecution of Christians is on the rise in many parts of the world. What is fueling it? Director of the Center for Religious Freedom, Nina Shea, is here with analysis. And finally, author Jessica Hooten-Wilson shares an unfinished novel by Southern author Flannery O'Connor. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an ex post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's begin. Pope Francis addressed journalists accredited to the Holy See Press Office at the Vatican this week. He thanked the press corps for their reportage on the church, scandals and all. Here to report is one such journalist, senior correspondent for the National Catholic Register. Edward Penton. Edward, thanks for being here. In his remarks, the Pope encouraged reporters to base their work on, quote, the solid rock of responsibility for the truth, end quote, and not the shifting sands of gossip and ideology. The Pope then added the following improvised remark. I would like to add the delicacy that you so often have in speaking of scandals in the church. There are some, and many times I have seen in you a great delicacy, a respect, and almost, I say, abashed silence. Thank you for this attitude." End quote. Edward, what is your take on that comment, particularly where he thanks the press for what he calls unab or abashed silence? Yes, it's a rather strange uh, comment, Raymond. I mean, I think what he's trying to get at primarily is that he thinks it's important to, to be to treat these issues with delicacy because they are a uh, scandal to the faithful and, and so they need to be handled with care. But then he thanks, uh, as you say, thanks the journalists for an abashed silence. And of course, this is this is rather problematic because, of course, during the sex abuse crisis, uh, the media, uh, rather the church, was silent about uh, these scandals. Um, I didn't want them reported. And now he's saying, well, it's good that you're not actually uh, reporting some of these scandals. Uh, and indeed, uh, the media has been generally very friendly to the Pope. Of course, they have reported some some scandals. But on the other hand, there have been uh, times where, where they haven't. And uh, especially even in the Catholic press, um, certain issues have been sort of put, passed over when they probably should have been talked about and reported, um, causing quite a lot of concern. I think... Um, I talked to a senior Vatican official earlier today, and he was saying that if any other world leader had said this, uh, it would have been major news and major headlines, because he's basically saying, well, stay silent when there's when there's a, a, a crisis and a scandal. So it's, it's a right. rather strange comment. The only one that he actually made off the cuff. So interesting. Edward, who is he talking to here? I mean, we have to paint the picture. It wasn't just anybody. This is, I call them, perhaps cynically, the kept puppies of the church. Look, I feel the same way about when I was a Capitol Hill correspondent. We were the kept puppies. And when you're a kept and fed puppy, you have to kind of toe the line. Because if you, if you report something outside the line, you get your hand slapped and they won't talk to you for a week or two. Yes, it is a bit like that. I mean, there's. I think. I think the majority. Um, sadly, the Vatican press corps does tend to be like that. That it tends to, mm -hmm. to report. Um, you know, the, the positive stories in a sort of public relations way, uh, without actually tackling the, the, the tough issues and asking hard questions, and and also being critical about not just the scandals, but the, you know the accusations of of heresy and and blasphemy and sacrilege and heterodoxy mm. that, that have grown up in, in, the, in this pontificate. This address has been widely reported, especially in the Catholic press, as Pope Francis encouraging in-depth coverage of church affairs, including the more controversial and even scandalous stories that we've seen in recent months. Rupnik and same-sex blessings and the Beishu and Vatican finance story. 
Edward, is that what you and your colleagues heard from the Pope here? On these scandals that you mentioned, I think he's um, <clears throat> he tended to be quite, um, he's kind of pushed them aside. And I think he's been, been happy that the, the media hasn't perhaps come onto them so strongly. Um, mm. And I think that's the case here. I think he's been, he's actually been quite, um, I think, I think he's actually speaking his mind here, perhaps um, um, imprudently on, on his part by actually saying this, because I think he's sort of saying what he's thinking, which is that he's happy that there has been silence about these scandals. Before we run out of time, I want to get your take on the growing dissent to uh, fiducia supplicans, that document on same-sex blessings, um, really all over the world. Retire, retired Hong Kong Cardinal Joseph Zen said this week that the document creates confusion and that the doctrinal head, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, should resign. How is the Vatican processing all of this and the growing list of bishops and bishops' conferences who are rejecting the document out of hand? Well, as they often do, Raymond, they tend to ignore them. Um, and it's it's interesting. Uh, somebody once said to me the other um, about the, the way the Vatican treats scandals and bad news is that they tend to absorb them and then sort of suffocate them and hope that they just sort of die away. And I think that tend, that seems to be what they're trying to do here. They just tend to ignore it. Um, there's been so mm. many now comments criticizing this document and, and calling for Cardinal Fernandez's resignation, too. Um, but they all yeah. tend to be, and they just sort of hope they go away. And, and actually, that tends to work. They do tend to go away, and uh, they just move on to the next one. Well, especially when you have a compliant press corps that kind of looks the other way and reports on, you know, the renovation of the latest mural or the Pope walked up and kissed a baby today. All those important breaking stories. In a related uh, story here, I also want to mention this is the week of prayer for Christian unity um, and the ecumenism it attempts to promote. How is fiducia, that, that this document on same-sex couples and blessing them, how is that affecting ecumenical relations with other faiths and specifically with the Anglican Communion, whose bishops are meeting with their Catholic counterparts this week in Rome? Well, I mean, the Orthodox uh, Church has been quite strongly critical of this and actually say that it's probably making it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to continue with, with ecumenical relations. But uh, but the Anglican Church is, is slightly different. I mean, they've, they've sort of pushed this along quite, quite strongly and uh, for a long time now. And I was talking to a very senior Anglican leader only yesterday about this, and he was saying that um, that they're very supportive of fiducial supplicants and thinks it's a good thing. It's all all part of of um, more hospitality, bringing in uh, every, Eucharistic hospitality and bringing everyone in. Uh, and this particular official said uh, that he his his views are almost identical to the Pope's. So um, so it's it's interesting that the Anglicans seem to be very much on board with this. Um, and, and see perhaps the church, the Catholic Church, is sort of following their lead because they've, in many parts of the Anglican Communion, have already gone down this path. Well, they, they, and you know the pattern is even the same because you had the Africans up in arms when when the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and their synod approved uh, these gay blessings many years ago, and it seems the same pattern is following in Catholicism. Uh, the the Archbishop of Canterbury also. Edward, we should say, for the first time in my memory, and I think in, in anyone's memory from the folks I've spoken to in Rome, you had the Archbishop of Canterbury, with the Pope's permission, celebrating an Anglican communion at a Catholic church in Rome. Well, it's interesting, Raymond, because this hasn't really made much of a headline, but it is, it is quite unprecedented. At least I can't remember mm -hmm. all the time I've been reporting on the Vatican in Rome of, a, of an Archbishop of Canterbury coming to celebrate an Anglican Eucharist in a Catholic church. Mm. Uh, but th and this isn't just any Catholic church. It's the Basilica of, of St. Barth Bartholomew, uh, which is dedicated yeah. to the martyrs of the 20th century. But even so, it's um, which are all martyrs, the, 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 whether they're uh, Catholic or not, uh, but Christian martyrs. But it is, it is quite unprecedented. And I don't think, um, as I say, I don't think I've, an Archbishop of Canterbury has done this before. So, But again, you mm. see, only last year we had the the Anglicans um, celebrating their Eucharist in these in St. John Lateran, which caused a, a huge scandal. But it now seems to be that that wasn't su such a mistake. It was probably planned. Um, but as somebody wow. said to me tonight, it's all part of <clears throat> really turning the church into a more political organization than the church one by, by letting everyone uh, come and receive the Eucharist, uh, whoever they are. Um, and this mm. is causing, again, 
stand for a lot of people. Confusion, more confusion. And, you know, it's a curious moment in, in history that we've reached, Edward, where uh, in a Catholic church, in an esteemed and historic Catholic church in the heart of Rome, you can celebrate the Anglican liturgy, but you daren't celebrate the old Tridentine rite. We will leave it there. Uh, thank you, Edward Penton. You can follow Edward's reports at Edward Penton or at the NC Register. Thanks so much, Edward. Thank you, Eddie. I now want to go to theologian and former head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, who joins us from our Rome studio. Your Eminence, thank you for being here. Pope Francis recently commented on the growing resistance that I just talked to Ed about to fiducia supplicans. That's the document that allows the blessing for same-sex couples. In an Italian TV interview, the Pope said the following... The Lord blesses everyone who is capable of being baptized, that is, every person. But we are to take them by the hand and help them go down that road, not condemn them from the beginning. Uh, your, your eminence, Pope Francis also said that the resistance to this document arises because, in most cases, critics just don't understand it. Cardinal Mueller, is calling a sinner to repentance the same as condemnation? And have, do you not understand this document? I think this whole document is a failed uh, project. The intention was uh, to introduce all these uh, people, uh, marginalized people uh, in, living in sin uh, and the edges of the church. Uh, but uh, the methods uh, are not the best ones. Um, Jesus gave us uh, the introduction how to introduce uh, these people by um, saying the gospel to them, to lead them the way of Jesus Christ and to repent the sins and uh, so to listen to the gospel and to come to the holy uh, sacraments. Jesus gave for us his life and the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. These are the ways for our salvation and not only a goodwill that to everybody, like the Freemasons, they are speaking of the fraternity of everybody without uh, an obligation, without a conversion, without changing your uh, life and the imitation of Jesus Christ. In the marriage is God himself who blessed uh, the husband and uh, the wife, and we as a priests, as a representatives of Christ, the head of the church, we have to follow uh, him and not to um, grow uh, confusion uh, to everybody uh, in, in the world. And the effect was, was tremendous for the church. Now the church is more divided uh, than every time uh, before. And uh, it's not only um, uh, sufficient to have a good will, but also to look what will be the consequences. Your Eminence, the, the growing resistance worldwide to uh, fiducia supplicans is really something we've never seen. I mean, particularly in non-Western countries uh, and continents like Africa. In fact, Cardinal Kurt Koch, the uh, prefect of the Dicastery for Promoting Christian Unity, mm -hmm. said, I am getting some negative reactions from the ecumenical world about this document. Now, uh, my question is, given this unprecedented reaction from all corners of the world, the Dutch, the Africans, Hungary, over this document, what do you think will eventually have to be done here? Will it have to be rescinded? This document must be uh, rewritten in, in the clear uh, Catholic uh, theological understanding. Um, on the one hand, was said um, there is no uh, change in the doctrine. On the other hand, you can ask why was was necessary to give this uh, this document if it's not a doctrinal change, and we cannot change the doctrine about uh, marriage and and um, the human sexuality because uh, all is given in the in the creation in the, in the word of God is revealed uh, to us and if we are obedient to the word of God we cannot change the doctrine and the pope and the bishops mm -hmm. are instituted by Jesus Christ to uh, protect 
the, the right understanding of uh, the revelation once and forever given in Jesus Christ and the apostles in the early church two years ago. There was uh, given another document which said the church has no uh, authority to bless same-sex uh, couples. And and uh, and now is it in an unclear way is that it's possible, but it's not possible. We can uh, bless uh, the single person of a couple, but not the couple of the single uh, persons. Uh, I, nobody is, is able with a normal uh, logic uh, education to understand what it is. No one can make heads or tails of this document, Your Eminence. And look, you have the head of the African Bishops' Conference who came out this week, and he explained how he and mm. Cardinal Fernandez at the doctrinal office, working with Pope Francis, essentially wrote a new document prohibiting these same-sex blessings in the continent of Africa. How can you carve out this continent but not the next one? And is that mm. truly one Catholic and universal? Now we have a new situation, a little bit similar, that now the African churches, Catholic churches, are the leaders in this way of, of the correction of a failed uh, a document. Uh, and I think we cannot relativize the Africans only saying that their culture, but their culture in this, uh, this uh, aspect is, is better than our uh, decadence uh, culture in, in the West. And therefore, uh, this is a very um, uh, important moment in the church history that now the, the Africans are entering the place and taking over uh, the leadership in the Catholic Church, and, uh, and this is a very uh, good uh, thing they are doing. Your Eminence, as I mentioned to Ed Penton earlier, Cardinal Joseph Zen, the embattled Bishop Emeritus of Hong Kong, has condemned this document, this uh, fiducia supplicans, even calling for the prefect of the doctrine of faith, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, to resign. He writes... If the prefect of the DDF is not committing a heresy by claiming a serious sin as good, then shouldn't the prefect resign or be dismissed? Cardinal Mueller, as the former head of the doctrinal office, your reaction to Cardinal Zen's assessment and his call for uh, the resignation of Cardinal Fernandez? That must be, that must decide the Pope himself and, and has to listen all to the voices are coming out uh, from uh, the world, and we cannot, uh, nobody can say, uh, say this, all these uh, bishops and cardinals uh, were not able uh, to understand what was uh, written. Uh, we all have studied theology and, and taught theology in the, in the universities, and uh, we can understand a text of, of 20 pages. <laughs> There's no problem for us. Mm -hmm. We have... Um, uh, studied mm. theology, not uh, gynecologist. We don't all the details uh, like others. No, uh, this is not necessary. Mm -hmm. But to to know what is, is written in the in the Holy Scripture and in the tradition and the, the doctrine of the Church, that is that is important for us theologian and not. Uh, uh, anatomic uh, details. Uh, there are the speci <laughs> specialities of of other yes. uh, professions. I, I saw that illusion you dropped there. That was a good one. Your Eminence, you recently gave an interview to Crisis Magazine about the Pope's authority in the Church, and you said, "Quote: The Catholic Church is not the Pope's Church, and Catholics are therefore not Papists, but Christians." How should we understand the Pope's teaching authority and the limits placed upon it? Are there limits? First, Vatican Council formulated this dogma of the infallibility of the Pope and his uh, primate in the jurisdiction and in the leadership, we can say, um, gave a, a, a very clear uh, definition of the importance and also of, of the limits of uh, this authority of, of the Pope. And for us, for the Catholics, it's absolutely clear that the primacy of the Bishop of Rome as successor of St. Peter is the institution, divine institution, institution of divine right. And there is no doubt 
that uh, the Bishop of Rome is a visible principle of the unity of uh, the, the whole the church, worldwide church, in the revealed uh, truth in Jesus Christ. But we have to distinguish the office of the Pope and uh, the person, the actual Pope, with his human limits, with his moods, uh, with his emotions uh, and uh, with all the um, limits everybody has. And it is uh, very important that the advisors uh, of the Pope, the cardinals, they are the official advisors of the Pope and not, uh, not a small group of, of friends, so-called friends, um, the cardinals, they must, like just St. Thomas Aquinas said, they needed uh, check and balances uh, uh -huh. because everybody has his limits and therefore uh, the Pope needs good advisors, also sometimes uh, critical advisors and not uh, adulators. And with this we must distinguish between the office of the Pope to underline and to present the revealed truth and the faith from his private um, and personal meanings and prejudices uh, as a Latin America against the United States and all this, um, for me, not so understandable prejudices, uh, but everybody has his limits. And the Pope, especially the Pope, with, with all these uh, consequences, every word of him will have in the, in the world. If he gives an interview, uh, all the people is listening, oh, the Pope had said, the Pope had said, uh, the Pope had said, this as, as his personal opinion, but not as the uh, pronunciation and the exclamation presentation of the revealed Catholic uh, faith. And this, we must learn to distinguish it uh, better. And, and therefore, um, this is, would be very important mm -hmm. uh, that the coming popes are more careful in uh, the presentation of what they are saying in the papal office and what they are, say, are saying beside in private interviews about uh, aspects and themes and, and problems in the world, which are problems. And, and it is interesting to, to, to know what is the, the actual Pope is thinking about it, but it's not the mm -hmm. same as the proclamation of the revealed faith. Before I let you go, I need to get your thoughts on the continuing purge of the traditional Latin Mass in the wake of that Guardians of the Tradition document, particularly here in the U.S., in the Diocese of Covington, Kentucky. The bishop has removed the faculties of two priests who said publicly that the post-Vatican II Novus Ordo was, quote, irrelevant. Uh, Cardinal Mueller, your thoughts on the speed, the intensity, and the heavy-handed tactics being deployed against priests who celebrate the old rite or voice their opinions about the new or the old rite? As the Holy Mass is dogmatically instituted by Jesus Christ and has this, there's a, there's a doctrine about uh, the Holy Mass, but the rites uh, are different in the Catholic Church, and every rite has a certain history and a certain uh, variation, and therefore nobody can be absolutely um, identify the, the essence of, of the sacraments and the ritual uh, liturgical form. And um, therefore, surely the the Vatican, Second Vatican Council had made a reform and a renewal of the liturgical thinking and the liturgical uh, practice and a certain reform of, of the uh, liturgical rites. But the, didn't, mm -hmm. the Vatican didn't, uh, the Council didn't change the doctrine 
about it. And therefore, uh, here is needed a more sensibility, uh, pastoral sensibility and uh, acceptation of those uh, priests and faithful who um, prefer the Latin Mass in um, in the, the Latin Rite in the, in the older uh, form, and not to make mm-hmm. this question to a, dog, a question of faith and dogmatics, but is only a question of the discipline of the liturgical <coughs> discipline. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there is needed by so bishops who want to be good shepherds, not to look to Rome. And uh, to say to the Holy Father, I suppress these people, and therefore I um, look for a reward to become promoted, become archbishop or cardinal, and and this uh, childish uh, behavior of of some bishops uh, we have, but to be, have the responsibility, it is more important that is that is celebrated. The, the Holy Mass in what form and of the rite, uh, whatever it is, uh, then that the people are uh, angry with the church and they will leave uh, the church. We cannot may have, say we have closed a traditional uh, mass uh, parish and not to, to care for these people where they are now going to. We just watched a little while ago the Archbishop of Canterbury celebrating the Anglican Rite in St. Bartholomew's in Rome, yet priests of the Roman Rite can't celebrate the Old Latin Mass there. I mean, this is there's something wrong here. I'll mm. give you the final word. It's a ridiculous contradiction, no? because for us the Latin Mass in the Latin um, Rite in the Western Church says the Latin rite uh, has different uh, forms, also the abrosion uh, rite, uh, and therefore we have a certain uh, variety of, of uh, mm-hmm. forms of the same uh, liturgy and what is belonging to the liturgy, the Holy Mass of the, of the Anglicans, <laughs> we as Catholics don't accept with all respect, but uh, dogmatically. Um, the magisterium doesn't accept the validity of the priesthood of them, and therefore there is not a valid uh, holy mass. And this is not only a question of uh, you are open or not open. Um, this all the time is the same. They are made decisions without a theological and dogmatic uh, fundament, only uh, for looking good and to looking open, and, 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 and I am so liberal, and you can make what you want, but uh, if you are not obedient in secondary uh, questions, there is, they are coming with the authority and, and with penalties and all these things with the authority. Uh, it is very needed that we have a more clear theological basis of the concrete uh, decisions. And it is not so, not so difficult. Uh, yeah. to, 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 you must only read mm. the, the, the Vatican Council and, uh, and they will see all. There's a good basis for uh, practical uh, decisions. Yes. You make such a great point about the kind of virtue signaling, you know, in uh, in in uh, appearing open, but it it creates and sows seeds of confusion, and that's what I think is so heartbreaking for so many, because neither the Anglicans nor the Catholics know where anybody stands when this is over. Your Eminence, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. According to Open Doors, more than 365 million Christians in 50 countries suffer from persecution and discrimination because of their faith. In parts of Africa, one in every five Christians suffers some kind of persecution. This is especially true in Nigeria, where advocates, including my next guest, 
have called on the Biden administration to respond to the ongoing wave of persecution in that country. Joining me now to discuss the situation, not only in Nigeria and other parts of the world, director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute, Nina Shea. Nina, thanks for coming back. According to Open Doors, a staggering 90 percent of all Christians killed for their faith are killed in Nigeria. Over Christmas, we saw the 140 Christians just massacred in that country. Yet earlier this month, the Biden administration rejected recommendations from leading human rights groups, religious freedom groups, as your, like your own, to reverse course, and they failed to designate Nigeria as one of the worst offenders of religious freedom in the world. Why? Why did they remove them from that list? Well, Raymond, uh, you're right. It is the worst place in the world. Open Doors has even come out just this month saying that there are more Christians killed in Nigeria for their faith than everywhere else in the world combined. And yet it's Mm. been left off this list because the administration's analysis is that this is the results of climate change, um, not (laughs) religious animus. And, And that's absurd. Um, because these Christians are being targeted. There's a larger uh, situation of, of lawlessness in Nigeria, but they're systematically being attacked in, in these uh, massacres, uh, largely by Fulani um, militants. Uh, these are nomadic mm-hmm. uh, tribe of, of, of Muslim militants, and they're yelling Allahu Akbar as they slaughter the Christian farmers in their fields, in their beds at night. They're going after Catholic priests, Methodist bishops, even a couple of imams who are too moderate for their taste. So it's it's definitely a, a religious motive behind this. And the other part of this is that, which is critical for this country of particular concern list, the world's worst mm-hmm. countries for religious persecution, is that the government of Nigeria, Abuja, lets this go on with impunity. No one is ever arrested, prosecuted, and charged for these crimes. And millions of Christians have been driven from their lands, are now internally displaced within Nigeria, totally mendicant, totally dependent on aid, whatever aid they can get through the church usually, um, lost their livelihoods, lost some of their loved ones, lost their farms. Um, and the government does nothing to stop it. Yeah, Blinken was just there. And I know he's under some pressure because in addition to, you know, this human massacre of Christians, you also have these indiscriminate military attacks where they're bombing refugee camps and, you know, and they claim, oh, it was a mistake. Why won't they, A, condemn this regime and rein it in? We, we give them a lot of aid. I know you've sent a letter to Congress, uh, along with Congress, rather, asking them to respond to the Department of State's failure to adequately address uh, all of this, this systematic, ongoing religious persecution. What response have you received? Um, well, we have received no response except a rejection of our, our proposal to name it in this list, which is a fairly, um, you know, moderate step. It's, it's simply to identify them and put some pressure on the government. They do receive a billion dollars a year in U.S. foreign aid. And, wow. um, and it keeps going up because the situation keeps spiraling out of control. This is Africa's most populous country. It's one of its wealthiest. It's probably its wealthiest. Um, uh, and um, yet the, the, there really is very little attention to this problem of lawlessness. It starts with attacks on the religious minorities, particularly the Christians, which is um, very mm-hmm. large. It's almost half the country, half the population. And... Um, and, and then it spirals out, and it's, um, it, it, it spins out of control. It, it, it never stays with just the Christian after many years. It started with the kidnapping yeah. of Christian girls, Leah Sharibu, um, who's still a slave mm-hmm. now after being um, kidnapped from her school, um, and the Chibok school girls, the same thing. And um, now, then it started attacking all schools, um, you know, the, the, yeah. the, 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 these uh, militants, um, some of them just wanting to shut down Western-style education, others wanting just money and, um, uh, you know, hostages. So it's, um, hmm. it's, it, it's, it's really um, not going to help American interests um, to have a destabilized regional influencer like Nigeria um, in the hands, in the clutches of not just one, but 
uh, three or four or five Islamic extremist groups, Boko Haram, ISIS, al-Qaeda, they're all there. And now the Fulani wow. uh, Muslims are becoming radicalized, not all of them, but some of them. Mm. Wow. Intersociety, a Nigeria-based nonprofit, has reported that 52,000 Christians have been killed and more than 14 million Christians forced to flee Nigeria since 2009. How is this not a religious genocide, Nina? And, and explain to me how the Biden administration figures that this is climate change in action. And, and they also found out that there 18,000 churches have been burned or damaged. And this is happening in, a, 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 you know, what's very vivid and, and clear is uh, when you look at one of their states, Benway State, it's um, in the northern central part of Nigeria, right outside of Abuja, not far. And it's the capital. And it's, an, um, it's about 90 percent Christian. And this year, I think um, just in this past 12 months or so, they've had two million Christians internally displaced because of wave after wave of these Fulani massacres, again, attacking farmers. And um, the Fulani mm. don't live there. They, they are invading from outside from another state or maybe even another country. And when these Christians flee to the re uh, refugee camps, internal camps for aid, because they have, they have to leave their villages, um, they're attacked there, too. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, they're going after them, not just for land, but because they don't want their presence at all in the country. Awful situation. Well, we've been covering it for years. We have to keep our eyes on mm -hmm. it and make sure the audience knows about it. But Congress should step in, and certainly the administration. I want to move on, Nina, to China, where earlier this month, Catholic Bishop Peter Shao was arrested by security forces who told him to, quote, bring clothes for every season. Bishop Shao was, by the way, ordained by Benedict XVI, by papal mandate in 2011. However, he is not recognized by the communist Chinese authorities due to his refusal to join the Patriotic Association. And this is not the first time that this bishop has been arrested. Have Chinese authorities given any reason for his arrest this time? Or does anyone have any idea why he was taken? Uh, no, there's no reason. There's no, um, uh, except that he hasn't joined this uh, patriotic group, which means that, that he will refuses to take a vow of distancing himself, of independence from the Vatican, from the Pope. So he, because he remains a faithful uh, to the Pope and to the Catholic doctrine, um, he is being taken away. And he's usually been taken away, uh, you know, multiple times over the years, maybe seven, eight times, uh, for various wow. uh, lengths of time, sometimes uh, most of a year. Uh, um, and he's sometimes just taken away for uh, special holy days or holidays uh, so that he cannot say Mass. And um, this time wow. it was very ominous because they told him to bring clothes for all seasons, indicating that he'd be there for a long time. But this is completely mm. without due process. So there is no trial. There's no charges. Yeah, but Nina, Nina, where is the Vatican in all of this? I mean, and I want you to tie it to this story that's breaking today. Bishop Thaudio Wang Huxiang who was consecrated a bishop within the framework of this Vatican-China agreement today, Pope Francis made his episcopal appointment back in December, but we're only hearing news of it once the man's already consecrated. What is going on here? Um, yeah, the, the Vatican is clinging to this agreement as if, it, as if China's upholding it, but China's not. Beijing has breached the agreement uh, several years ago, about two years ago, and um, mm -hmm. they, um, uh, they, the Vatican does not want to uh, criticize uh, Beijing in any way, um, so that it will, in fact, go further than that. They will praise Beijing, saying it um, upholds climate uh, standards, which it doesn't. It's one of the worst. <laughs> um, so it praises um, China and uh, refuses to criticize them, even when their own bishops are being... Uh, appointed behind their back. I mean, when when, Catholic, when Beijing wow. is appointing their own bishops behind the Vatican's back, uh, or when they're putting mm -hmm. the Pope's consecrated bishops in uh, with a papal mandate in prison or in secret black jails. This is unofficial detention centers, which is where Bishop Shao is today. Is that what you think happened here, the, that, that Beijing dropped this bishop on Rome? So that's why it's kind of coming out. We only learn about it during the consecration. 
rather than an earlier announcement and, and a formal appointment yeah. by, by Rome? Uh, yes, I think that under the agreement, um, the Vatican has indicated that the Pope has a say. He at least has um, a veto power. And it turns out not to be true in, in a number of cases, the last number of bishop appoint Episcopal appointments by Beijing. And, the, and he has, um, ex post facto, uh, the Pope has um, a, 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 a agreed with it, but didn't have any advance notice, much less a right to right. veto. So um, that's that's the problem here, and it's a fiction. It's a legal fiction yeah. at this point. And um, the the Pope, for the sake of unity, he says he's he's going along with these bishops. But these bishops, um, you know, may not be or not his choice. And and Peter Shaw, the Bishop Shaw, who did have a papal mandate. Um, one of the reasons that they think that, 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 that his diocese thinks that he was um, put away in this black jail um, just this month is that he wrote a letter to a priest in his diocese who was appointed by the Patriotic Church who um, started transferring um, parishes away out of the diocese and, and um, doing things uh, without the, the Episcopal approval of Peter Shaw, Bishop Shaw. And he said wow. that's uh, a violation of canon law. And, I, and he wrote that letter. And the next thing he knew, he was under arrest in a, and thrown into yeah. a secret detention place. We have to pray for all those people in China, the, 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 particularly the faithful clergy and, and um, you know, parishioners. It's a, it's a tragedy there. And the fact that Rome is blessing this makes it even worse and, and makes the wound deeper. Nina Shea, thank you for all your reportage on this and your ongoing vigilance of the persecution of Christians worldwide. You can learn more at Hudson.org. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Raymond. When one of the great American Catholic short story writers of the 20th century, Flannery O'Connor, passed away in 1964, at the age of 39, she left behind an unfinished work, a novel that would have been her third. Deemed unpublishable, it remained in the O'Connor archive until now. My next guest took on the task of editing the unfinished manuscript. To tell us all about it, I'm joined by the Fletcher Jones Endowed Chair of the Great Books at Pepperdine University. She's also the author of Flannery O'Connor's Why Do the Heathen Rage? A behind-the-scenes look at a work in progress. Please welcome back to the program Jessica Hooten Wilson. Whew, I know that's a long intro. Look, <laughs> you know, as you know, Jessica, I'm a huge O'Connor fan. But before we get to your version of Why Do the Heathen Rage?, uh, I want to revisit something we spoke about when you were last here. We talked about the role of suffering in the mm. search for God. And Flannery O'Connor struggled with lupus her entire writing career. Mm. And I think it bears repeating a quote of hers. She, she said this about suffering in the characters she created. It has always seemed necessary to me to throw the weight of circumstances against the characters I favor. Mm. The friends of God suffer. How does O'Connor's work utilize suffering to demonstrate its power and how it can draw one to God? I think it's important to distinguish between suffering that is being instrumentally used by God versus an idea that God himself is making his people suffer. There are things that make us suffer in the world, but we always want to distinguish that not it's not God doing it, right? It's the the yeah. sinfulness of human beings. It's the fallenness of the state of the world. And Flannery saw that, and it was with her teeth bared, looking at suffering in the face and saying, "Okay, what does it mean to be refined by this suffering, like it's a purgatorial fire?" And so that's what you get to see in her work: is that characters can either choose to see suffering is going to burn them up towards damnation, or it's going to burn them towards purging and refining them. And, and I think that's what's, mm. what's beautiful about what happens in Flannery's stories. Well, and this brings us to your latest project, mm -hmm. uh, Flannery O'Connor's Why Do the Heathen Rage, this behind-the-scenes look at a work in progress. How were you chosen, or how did you choose yourself to complete, <laughs> uh, if you will, Flannery's unfinished novel? It's a little... And what were you dealing with in the archives? Sure. It's, it's a little bit of both and on that. I was excited to do it. Of course, I jumped at the opportunity but Billy Sessions, who was the one who did her prayer journal several years ago, and he was able to mm -hmm. put that out. He was a friend of Flannery's. He was very well-versed in her archives. In 2009, we had dinner, and we discussed what was in her archives. And he said, if you love Dostoevsky, you're going to love Flannery's unfinished novel. It was the first I'd heard about it. 
So I headed straight to the archives. Mm. I started working on it. And when I showed Billy what I was working on, he said, you know what? You're the one to put this out. You're the one to finish it and brought it to the attention of the, of the estate. So we went from there, and it's been almost 15 years oh. trying to get this to put out wow. in the right way. Well, and the story is pure, O'Connor, but uh, one can see how there might have been some hesitation to publish this, given the story's central theme of race. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's set, of course, in the South. The main character is a young white intellectual, Walter Tillman, who pretends to be black in his correspondence with a white woman, Una, who's a New York social justice activist. Tell us a bit about the plot and the other themes O'Connor wrote about this story. Sure. It is pure O'Connor, as you said. So the character of Walter should remind us so much of Flannery, who also had gone off to schooling, so to speak, in the North, and then returned to her Southern world. And her Southern world in the 1960s was a very segregated world. So it's the world that Walter Tillman, her character, lives in. And in this world, he is challenging the people around him by writing letters to them and pretending to be someone other than who he is. In this case, he puts on what I call epistolary blackface. So you're right. This would be a difficult thing to publish at this time. But what happens mm -hmm. in the work is Flannery, in a sense, is challenging her own preconceptions, the problems she had in her own world about race and the things that she thought were problematic. Even in the 1960s, this is before Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act. You have Flannery taking on this issue and, and wanting to understand, you know, how is everyone made in God's image? What does it look like to really love your neighbor? And it's through this character that she puts in this circumstance that she's really able to ask those questions. Mm. Now, since the work was unfinished and you had to pour through not only type pages of manuscript as well as O'Connor's handwritten notations, you had kind of a monumental task here organizing this thing. How did you decide to organize the material? And what was your guiding principle as you made decisions about what to leave in or omit? It took a lot of different forms over the last decade or so trying to get this correct and having a lot of input from people. I would send drafts to others and get their feedback, O'Connor scholars, from novelists, from writers and memoirists, just what is the right way to tell this story. And I think the more that I involved other people in the conversation, I began to see that that's what was beautiful about this story. This story was a way of showing that a woman was in progress herself and that she was sharing her story with us, and she was, in a sense, asking us to be a part of it. And as I went through the process in that way, I started forming a narrative that said, okay, what do we wonder? What do we hope for this work? When we read this, what are our responses? How does this put us into a community, I think, in the way that Flannery wanted her work to be part of the church and part of its activity? And so I hope that that was kind of my guidance as I went through. In what ways could I be faithful to her, but also draw people into her story? Why was the work left unfinished at the time? I mean, obviously she, she died, mm -hmm. but it wasn't only her passing that interrupted the publication here. Right. Well, many of her, her two novels took the longest. As you started the introduction, you said, mm -hmm. you know, she's a famous short story writer. That's what she was right. really good at. So I think part of it was a difficulty she always had in writing the longer genre. But also, of course, the mm -hmm. issues of race. She did not have black friends, and she's trying to write about a character who puts on blackface through the mail. She did not live in an integrated world, even though she said that that is something that, by principle, she desired. And so she had those hurdles to kind of overcome. And then lastly, it was her sickness. She fainted, you know, a year before she died in November of 1963 and was battling her sickness until her death. So it was also the sickness that kept her quite a bit from working on the story she wanted to tell. Uh, give me a sense about what the public can expect here mm -hmm. in uh, when they when they pick up Why Do the Heathen Rage? Is it complete? What is it? I know it's her last novel, mm -hmm. but what are you presenting them with, and how does it fit in with her other work? I think it's important to stress, and we tried to on the cover, that this is a work in progress. It's an unfinished mm -hmm. novel. I call it a literary excavation. It is a behind-the-scenes look at the material. So the places uh -huh. that I found were that were compelling in her story, the scenes that the scenes that felt finished rather than the whole novel being finished. And I put those scenes into a context of what was Flannery reading at the time, what was she thinking about, what was going on in the news, who was around her, mm -hmm. and how can we read these stories and get to see the fuller picture and try to imagine what she would have done with the material later had she lived. 
I, I know when you study a work of an individual intently for a long period of time, I remember transcribing Mother Angelica's addresses and teachings, and, you know, you, you start to hear their voices in your sleep. You inevitably learn something you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. What surprised you mm. about O'Connor's work as you immersed yourself in it? Oh, that's a fantastic question. You know, I don't think I understood her as a stylist as well as I did later. Mm. Once I started realizing how closely she attended to every word, that in some pages she would cross out one word and then the next day return to it and then the next day cross it out. And she was regularly just looking word by word. And I would go back and read her other short stories that were published during her lifetime that she did revise. And I saw how carefully mm. she crafted every single word. And suddenly the sacramental world she was creating where each word meant more than just its superficial or its literal sense, but had a spiritual significance, I could read her mm -hmm. in a stronger way than I had ever read her before. Hmm. How, did, how did her Catholic faith mm. manifest in this work? Did it show itself? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that is another attribute that we get to see in the story that's different than the works she had published before. Mm. Instead of startling mm. her character into a conversion, she said she wanted to be like Elijah hearing God's voice in a still small voice while he's in the cave. And so in a sense, we have Walter coming to God through a still small voice rather than a, a shocking drama or, you know, a stabbing by a gore by bull or, you know, we don't have some of those like <laughs> violent moments. We instead get this yeah. still small voice that she was working on. Well, I, I can't wait to read the, this deep more deeply because while I appreciate the still small voice, I still like the two by four over the middle of the head <laughs> that Flannery O'Connor usually delivers to us. We will leave it there. Flannery O'Connor's Why Do the Heathen Rage? A behind-the-scenes look at a work in progress compiled and edited by Jessica Hooten. Wilson is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you very much. Before we go, some very sad news. Mary Jane Murray, the beloved mother of our own father, Gerald Murray, passed away this week at the age of 90 years old. Ms. Murray was a committed Catholic and accomplished attorney, as well as a devoted wife and mother. She's now reunited with her beloved husband, the late Gerald E. Murray Sr., who passed away in 2017. May Mary Jane Murray rest in peace and please keep Father Jerry and the Murray family in your prayers. God rest Mary Jane's soul. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch the show next week, though I'm not going to tell you who'll be here. You'll have to come back and see it, but it's a doozy. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.